In a picture, a young teenager um, being ripped from their home. Their city and their nations completely defeated by their enemies. Almost everybody they know is killed, including their family. They find themselves carted away to a strange land, the strange people who speak a different language and worship strange gods and have their own culture and everything is different and foreign. And in this strange place where there's nobody really like them around, they have to figure out how in the world can they honor and still worship the God of the Bible. Well, Daniel didn't have to imagine that because that really was his reality. Daniel was an exile. And him, along with his three friends, were taken from the land of Israel into the land of Babylon. And there in that land, they had to figure out what does it mean to, to be faithful even apart from everything that you've ever known. And in some ways, we are like Daniel, where every Christian is also in a foreign land. Ultimately, we are citizens of heaven, not of earth, and our time here is temporary. And so here, in this strange land, in exile from our final home, we have to figure out how can we be faithful? And how can we be faithful amongst people who don't worship our God? So that's what we're going to look at this morning as we begin um, our study of the book of Daniel in Ch Daniel chapter 1. And we're really going to look a lot about faithfulness today. First, we're going to take a look at God. Then we're going to look at Daniel. And finally, we'll look at Jesus. Because it's always good to end with Jesus. Um, so we're going to read from Daniel 1 as kind of as our habit as we read through all of God's Word. Um, we do that if you're newer with us because we just, I think it's important um, the most important thing we do in our service, I think, is read from God's Word because we're here to hear from Him. And we're not here to hear from me, ultimately. So let's oh, stand with me, if you're able, um, as we read through Daniel 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and language of the Chalcedonians. The king assigned to them a daily portion of food that the king ate and the wine that he drank. And they were to be educated for three years. At the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah from the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them these names. Daniel he called Belshazzar. Hananiah he called Shadrach. Mishael he called Meshach. And Ezriah he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him to not defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink, for why should he see that you are in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. And Daniel said to the steward, who is the chief of the eunuchs, and assigned over Daniel and Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah, test your servant for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed to you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. 
And at the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were given and gave them vegetables. For these four youths, God gave them learning and skill and all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all the visions and dreams. And at the end of the time, when the king commanded they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke to them, and among them none was found like Daniel and Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah. And before they stood, therefore they stood before the king, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in the kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Let's pray. Lord, I ask that you would be here this morning. Lord, you promised that your word um, would not return void. I pray that that would continue to be true. That your word would be spoken. That our ears would hear it. That our consciences would be pricked. That we'd be convicted of sin. That the weak would be strengthened. That those without hope would be given the hope of Jesus. We pray this in your holy and precious name. Amen. And you can be seated. So first, let's talk about God. And our first point for you is that God is in control even when it looks like he's not. That God is in control even when it looks like he's not. And really, this is kind of the theme of the entire book of Daniel. Um, You're going to see this over and over as we look at these next 12 chapters. It's the idea that God is sovereign or his sovereignty, which is just a bit fancy theological word to mean that he's the king. He's in control. He's in charge over everything, everywhere, all the time. God is in control. Even when it might look like he's not, or we might wonder where he is. And with that in mind, I'll give you a quick overview of the book of Daniel, because this book is kind of wild. Um, It's a strange book. It's a weird book. It's one of the books that is completely really well-known and yet unknown. It's a book that many of the children in the back could tell us and recount us the stories from the book of Daniel, and yet there are chapters in here that many of us may have never read, or we read them once and went, I don't know what to do with that. Moving on, let me go back to those stories. And this is partly because the book is really split. It's kind of split in half. So the first six chapters are are lots of narrative. These are kind of the the well-known stories, the stories when you think of Daniel. These are the stories that come to mind. And the next six chapters are more filled with prophecy and prophetic words and even apocalyptic literature. And so those two things put together make this book kind of a mixed bag in trying to figure out what in the world is going on here. And it makes these two extremes um, can make the book more complex. But the theme, the thing that holds these two together, even though they're separate and weird, is this idea of God's sovereignty. That he's in control at all times, everywhere. Even when it looks like he's not, he is. That's expressed through the narratives and the stories and through apocalyptic prophecies. So let's talk about chapter 1 now. I want to kind of summarize and, and explain what's going on in the story. In the beginning, the, the exile, you fo- we're just going to look at these first two verses. In the first verse, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. So this is when Nebuchadnezzar conquered Judah. Right? Israel has already been split into a civil war kind of before this point, and the nations of Israel and Judah, and Israel's already been conquered, but Judah's kind of limping on for a few more kings, but now Babylon comes in and takes them out. And they conquer them. Verse 2, but you look and it says, And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. So God's people are completely defeated. 
and taken away. Babylon carries away the people and all of its treasures at the the end of verse 2. And with it, some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them into the land of Shinar, the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Their nations destroyed, their kings are killed and defeated, the city is completely wiped out, and the temple has been ransacked and torn down. The place where, where people would worship God is no more. And all of the things inside that they would use to worship God are now sitting in the temple to foreign gods, being desecrated. And the only people left in the land, and you can read about them in Second Kings, are described as being the poorest of the poor. It's only the people Babylon that, nah, we can't do anything with them. Let's just leave them there. Let's leave the homeless and the beggars. We'll leave them there. We'll take everyone who's worth anything back to Babylon. It's kind of the worst case scenario for Israel. It's not enough to just be defeated and conquered. They've been kidnapped, enslaved, and taken away to a place with a different culture, different language, different gods. It's not much of a worse fate we could imagine for Israel. You have to remember, exile is the worst fate for them. To be taken from the land that was promised. The land that God promised to Abraham. He said, I'm taking you to a land I will show you, and that'll, that'll be yours the land that they worked so hard to conquer and gain, as we studied, if you remember back in Joshua and Judges, that land is no longer theirs. And they're not there. The temple that they need is gone. Because God can only be worshipped at that temple. You can't make sacrifices anywhere else. It has to be made at that place. And the temple is the symbol of God's presence with them. That He is in their nation and He is their God and He cares for them. And He's the sovereign. He's the reason He is their king. Their entire system of worship has collapsed. It looks like everything has fallen apart, but God's in control. Even when it looks like He's not. It doesn't look like God is in control for Judah. I'm sure many Israelites wondered if God had totally abandoned them. And thought, well, it looks like the Babylonian gods are more in control than our gods. Their nation's destroyed. The temple's gone. They don't have any idea where the Ark of the Covenant is. Right? Kind of from this point, it's never seen or heard from again. And we don't know what happened to it. The symbol of God's presence that they carried with Moses and knew, hey, God is here, he's among us, and now it's, where is God? Does he even care anymore? But God is in control. And you look at, again, how this is described, the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. Babylon didn't conquer them because of their strength. They conquered them because God allowed it. God's the one who gave them over. So now Babylon took it. God did it. This only happened because God allowed it. And God isn't pictured passively. His picture is actively doing this. He is the one who gave them over because God is in control. This is what God wants. And God is actually being faithful here. This isn't God's faithlessness. This isn't God abandoning them. This is God being faithful to what he's told them he would do for generation after generation after generation. God warned them, this is what will happen. Way back in the time of Moses... When they were given the law, you can read about it in Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy 28. There's the blessings and curses of the covenant. And he says, you'll be my people and I will be your God. And here, obey me and here's all the ways that I will bless you. If you disobey me, here's all the consequences of your disobedience. And then it goes down the list. And first, I'm going to send, you know, I'm going to send you famine. Then I'm going to send enemies who are going to harass you. And then if you just keep not repenting, keep not repenting, keep not repenting. At the end, it says, I'm going to take you out of the land then. Since you're not going to obey me, and I'm going to let the land have rest that way. God has promised that this is what would happen. And yet, generation after generation after generation, king after king after king, 
has spit in God's face and abandoned them. Prophet after prophet tried to warn them that this was happening, and finally it's here. They shouldn't be able to scratch their head and think, man, where is God? God's saying, oh, I'm doing exactly what I told you I would do for 500 years. Here it is. But even in his judgment, God was faithful to keep his word, and he's still in control. And even though we today, wherever you are in your circumstances, you might wonder if God is in control. I wonder why is God giving these things to me or why are these things happening in my life? I don't know the answer to that. But I do know that God's in control even when it looks like he's not. And as believers, all of us, again, we find ourselves in exile today. Every single Christian in every single nation throughout all time is in exile. We are waiting. We are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. We're waiting for our king to return. God's kingdom is not of this world. We all find ourselves in exile waiting for our king to return. And while we wait, as while nations rise and as they fall, we remember our king is on the throne. And he is in control, even when it looks like he's not. So that's kind of the setting. And let's look to, to Daniel, to the rest of it. Our, our next point here is that should depend on the king of heaven, not the kings of earth. Depend on the king of heaven, not the kings of earth. So we're going to get more to Daniel's story here is kind of the rest of it. Um, I'm going to try, I'll summarize it briefly-ish and then kind of go into greater detail to explain what's going on because it's kind of a strange story. Basically what happens is Daniel and his three friends, they're taken into exile because they're part of the nobility or part of the, the people who look like they've got things together or the royal family. And they're not slaves, they're not thrown out to work in the field. Instead, they go to the University of Babylon, more or less, for three years to get educated. And they're meant to join the ranks of the wise men and the rulers and advisors of Babylon. And so this three-year education program, it's not just teaching them how to advise the king. It's actually an assimilation or a brainwashing course is what it's meant to be. It's meant to take them from being Israelites and to make them Babylonians. This is one of the reasons the Babylonians were, had a successful empire, is because they would assimilate and eradicate and get rid of other cultures and make you come into their culture and their ways. And Daniel and his friends, they're probably only young teenagers. Might be barely out of middle school. Could be 12 or 13 at this point. They're very young. Impressionable, right? It's not too late to make them forget about everything that they knew, their heritage and their God and their former nations. Maybe even we can make them forget their native language. And so as this is the background and what's going on here. And all this discussion about what they are or aren't eating is centered around this. Nebuchadnezzar is trying to make them Babylonians, not Israelites. And this is why they're renamed. It's not just a foreign name change. Right, because sometimes people from other countries come here and, you know, they end up having to get American names, usually because we're too lazy to figure out how to pronounce their name and we don't want to do that, so we make them change their name instead. Right, but it's not that, it's something more sinister is at hand. Because their Israelite names are all centered around Yahweh and God. And they don't want that, so they have to rename them for Babylonian gods instead. Daniel's name, it means, God is my judge. Hananiah's name means, the Lord is gracious. Mishael means, who is what God is? And Azariah is, the Lord is a helper. Instead of those names centered around Yahweh, they become Belteshazzar and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We don't know what these names mean, but we're fairly certain they're named after Babylonian gods, Marduk and Bel and Nebo, probably others. 
Instead of being named after God, they're named after Babylonian gods. And this is meant, again, to turn them into good Babylonians who forget all about that old God. And so with that pressure in mind, we turn to verse 8, where then Daniel says, he resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. And therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. So Daniel, they draw a line in the sand. And they say, enough is enough. Here, you know, I'll, I'll take the name. You can call me what you want to call me. I'll take your classes. Teach me what you want to teach me. But I've got to put a line in the sand somewhere. Enough is enough. I'm not going to eat the king's food where the king's drink, which it tells them in verse 5. The king assigns them a daily portion of food that the king ate and the wine that the king drank and educated for three years. At the end of that time, they stand before the king. So why? That's kind of strange, right? That's not where we would necessarily pick the, the line in the sand. And what really is the food um, about? There's, there's a couple options here. Some good Christians disagree about some of what this means. Um, I'll give you all of them and tell you what I think. Um, but so some say that this is about the Babylonian law, or this is about the Mosaic law, right? Because God gives his people clear rules on what they can and cannot eat. And so they must have been trying to get him to eat things that God told them not to. And so he says, no, I'm, even though I'm here, I want to still obey and honor God in eating the right food. Maybe the Babylonian food isn't following the law of God, so I want to eat vegetables instead. Others will say, well, it's probably food being sacrificed to idols, which is probably true. That happened a lot. The meat and the wine, they're being sacrificed to Babylonian gods. So Daniel doesn't want to be caught up in idol worship because he's still trying to stay faithful, even as a young man. To his God. And he says no. So there are certainly options. They're good ones I think. But I think they kind of miss the, the point of the chapter. I don't think that's quite it. And one of the reasons I think it's don't eat. I don't think it's either of those. Is because later in the book in Daniel 10. We hear and we read that Daniel is eating meat. The king's meat. And he's drinking wine. And Daniel throughout the whole book of Daniel. Is shown to us as being a righteous man. We don't really get any instance of his sinfulness. Or his unfaithfulness. And so I don't think suddenly, you know, he fell back and was in sin because it doesn't tell us that later. And if it was being sacrificed to idols and that was bad, then he wouldn't. And that was why he didn't eat it. Then I doubt he would walk that commitment back. There's also good reason to believe that the vegetables were also being sacrificed to idols as well. So I don't think that is exactly what's going on here. The reason for this line in the sand, I think that Daniel does, it has everything to do with dependence. Because Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, he wants them to become Babylonian. He wants them to be attached to the wonders and the beauty and the awesomeness of being around the king. And like the things that the king gives. Like the king's riches. To see the wealth of the feasts and the meat of the wine and come to love and serve this king. And want loyalty to this king. Because, well, look at what he's putting in my bank account. And we'll look at how awesome it is to be around him. And look, if, well, if I go against the king, I'm going to lose out on all these perks. So I'm going to go along with that. But Daniel recognizes this, I think, and says, no. Take your classes, take your name change, but I'm not going to be dependent on the king of Babylon. Instead, I'm going to depend on the king of heaven, the king of the cosmos. Daniel recognizes this is a trap. And the defilement, I think, he's trying to avoid is to avoid forgetting God. But you notice how he does this, how he goes about this, right? He doesn't just say, no, no more. I'm not eating it. You can't make me. He does it incredibly respectfully and passively. Verse 8, he says, he asks the chief of the eunuchs to allow not to defile himself. He asks. He doesn't demand. He doesn't take a petition. He doesn't go on strike. 
Let's do a hunger strike. He just goes and says, hey, this is what I would like to do. He humbly submits himself to the rulers over him, right? We talked about that in Titus 3, if you remember last week. Daniel gives us an example of doing that. He just asks if he can be excused from eating these things. Chief of the eunuchs says no, because he's scared for himself. Verse 10, well, I fear my Lord, the king who assigned your food and drink. Why should he see that you are in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? You'd endanger my head. He says, no, kid, you're messing with my livelihood. I'm not letting you do that. Then I'm going to get in trouble. So no. And so that person, again, he's more concerned with the king of Babylon thinks. It's kind of a little bit of a foil for Daniel. But Daniel doesn't quit. He goes down the chain and he asks somebody else. Still yet humbly. And in verse 11, then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. All right, so instead of going to the big boss, he just goes to the supervisor, a person right over him, and he asks him. But he's also wise, and he kind of hedges here, right? He realizes it might be a losing battle, so he kind of proposes an idea. In 12, well, hey, test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables and to eat and water to drink, and then let our appearance and the appearance of the youth who eat the king's food be observed by you. And then deal with your servants according to what you see. He says, hey, let's just try it. Let's just see what happens. We just go along with it and we'll, we'll just see. Let's see if me depending on God alone for, for strength and blessing works better than eating the king's food and all that he has. And what's the result of this request? 14, so he listened to him. And he tested him for 10 days. They get a chance to try. And it's a test that depends on God, right? Is God really in control even here? Even far away? Even in Babylon? Even without the priests and the prophets? But God shows up, verse 15, at the end of the 10 days, it was seen they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were drinking and gave them vegetables. God worked a miracle here. So don't, don't misunderstand this passage. Okay, this is a miraculous event that happens. Some seem to kind of misunderstand this and make it all about a healthy diet. I don't know if Daniel fasts, those were really popular. I think they've kind of faded. I don't know if they've come back or, or aren't, right? Some seem to make this about that. Or some will kind of make it and see, well, see, this passage is here to tell us why we should all eat vegetables and, and be vegans. Which, you know, that may or may not be a good idea, but that's not what this passage is about. That's not what Daniel was after. The Bible isn't written to be a diet guide for us, to teach us, you know, good, healthy eating habits. It's written to make us like Jesus. Daniel isn't here to give us a model of healthy eating. That was a, such a profound um, cheapening of what's going on here. He also just misunderstands what it's saying because you look at 15 again. It was seen they're better in appearance. Okay, that sounds nice. And fatter in flesh than all the used to eat the king's food. They ate nothing but water and vegetables and got fat. Okay, everyone else is, is drinking a lot. And eating a lot and stuffing themselves and they're just eating leafy greens and drinking water and getting fatter. Okay, and this doesn't mean that they were toned and muscular, right? Some will try and make it say that. No, because at this point, the ideal body is one that was bigger. It shows, you know, you, your wealth and your awesomeness. And this word flatter in flesh, it's the same one used to describe um, King Eglon from Judges. If you remember the story of the king who was so large that when Ehud came and stabbed him with his knife, the knife disappeared into his belly. Okay, that same word to describe that king is what it's used here to describe Daniel. So I don't think you can make it, again, that this is something about dieting. If it is about dieting, the message seems to be don't eat vegetables and drink water. They make you fat. You should eat meat and drink wine. 
okay? So I don't think that's what it is, but if you're going to do it, that's why. Well, how can it happen? How can Daniel get fat this way? Because of God. God worked a miracle. They didn't need the extravagances of the king of Babylon. They don't need to depend on Nebuchadnezzar. They can just depend on the God of heaven, and he shows up in miraculous and ordinary ways. And the God and the king of heaven always provides for those who depend on him, who look to him. And so because of Daniel's faithfulness, they're blessed by God. Verse 17 tells us, you know, as for these four youths, God gave them learning and skills in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. They're given gifts that no one else has. And these gifts are shown to us. They come from God. God gave them this. It's not because they're so impressive and they worked really hard. It's not because they studied really great in their classes and got good grades. And that's what happened. It's not because they put in the extra effort or got good tutoring. It's not because of their natural talent. These gifts come because God gave them. They come from the king of heaven and the king of heaven alone. So those three years are up. All their education and now comes the moment where they're put before the king. In verse 18, at the end of the time when the king commanded they should be brought in, chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. The king spoke with them and among them none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. I'm really struggling pronouncing that last one for some reason. Um, but they, they're found better than everyone else, right? The king of Babylon himself is interviewing them, and he's impressed, which is saying a lot because there's always people that are trying, you know, to, to butter up to the king, to impress the king or come to him with all of their requests, all of their things, all of their manipulations or, or whatever. And the king, then he inquires of them. He interviews them and is impressed, and they find favor before him. Verse 20, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding, about them, he found them ten times better than the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. Not just better, not just even better, not just a lot better, ten times better. Which details in Scripture I think are important that ten there is again. They trusted God for ten days, and here they're ten times better. I think there's some kind of play going on there. Now, how did all this come about? Because they had a vegetarian diet? No, because they depended on God alone. Because they decided we will depend on the king of heaven and we will see if he shows up to provide for us. See if he shows up. We'll need to depend on other kings. And in return, God blessed them. God blessed them not just before the king of heaven, but he blessed them in front of the king of the earth as well. At the mentioning, you know, God doesn't just elevate them here. God's faithful. And God's faithful to them throughout their entire exile. This last verse, 21 it says, and Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. That's 70 years from now. That's at the end of the story. It's closer to the end of the book. And King Cyrus, when he ruled Israel, he let, or when he ruled over Babylon, he let Israel return to the land. And some Israelites got to go back. So here it is, that entire exile, all those 70 years, Daniel depended on God alone. And God was faithful and God was with them. And God didn't abandon them, and God didn't leave them alone. Why? Because they depended on God and not the kings of the earth. That's God's faithfulness. That's Daniel's faithfulness. Let's talk about Jesus. What does all this have to do with Jesus and with the gospel? Well, part of this very simply is Jesus is a better Daniel. Jesus is a better Daniel. There's a lot of similarities between Daniel and Jesus. 
One of them is like Daniel. Jesus too was in exile. I think there's two different ways you can understand as Jesus as the Christ being in exile. The first one, Jesus is in exile of his heavenly kingdom. Right? He came down. Jesus has always existed because he is God. He is one person in the Trinity. So since the foundations of the earth were, were made, when God said, let there be light, Jesus was together with God and the Holy Spirit in eternity. Hanging out together. In the wonders of that, Jesus decided to leave all of that behind and come down and be born of the Virgin Mary. He left behind the throne of heaven and entered into the human realm. Why would you do that? I wouldn't want to come back here if I could be up there instead. A place with no suffering, no sickness. A place with angels and every wonder. A place filled with immeasurable love and the presence of God to come here among smelly, sinful, awful human beings. Yet God does that. He leaves the wonders of heaven for the small town of Bethlehem and Nazareth. Sounds a little bit like exile, but no one forced his hand. No one kicked him out. God didn't twist his arm and force him to go. We didn't make him do it. Jesus came down to earth in order to save us, in order to deliver us from our sins. He left the glory and wonder of heaven for the dirt of earth, not because our kingdoms were wonderful, not because he was kicked out, but because he loved sinners and he wanted to save them. Jesus also was run out of his home briefly as a child. Right, as Herod heard of the birth of the king of the Jews, that the Messiah was born, and he tried to kill all of the young boys. And so Jesus and his family had to flee to Egypt to live in safety. And like Daniel, Jesus was also wiser than everyone around him. And it wasn't because he had a Babylonian education. He was wiser and confounded the teachers and the rulers of the synagogue already as a child when his parents lost him. And they said, man... Wow, we asked him all these questions and he had better answers than we did. Where does this come from? It's not simply ten times better than everyone else. But Jesus is filled with all the wisdom and knowledge of the universe. And then some. Because he's God. And Jesus resisted every temptation of Babylon. Right? Every temptation of the world that could be put before him. Because Jesus, every temptation the devil put before him when he was in the desert. But yet Jesus lived a sinless, perfect life. He never conformed to the world, even though he lived among it and among us. Even though he spent time with his disciples every day, who constantly doubted him, who even after he fed the 5,000 and then they ran out of food and said, Ah, Jesus, looks like we're going to starve. And if it was any of us, we would just bang our heads against the wall and think, Did you guys forget what I just did two minutes ago? I can handle this. Yet Jesus never lost his temper in a sinful way. He never sinned in anything. Though he was tempted like us, he had sympathized with us in our weaknesses. Hebrews 4, Hebrews 4 tells us he accomplished what he nev we never could. Not just for his own sake to show how awesome he is, but so that he could be the perfect sacrifice on the cross for you and for me. And like Daniel, he had his own fast, but he didn't just eat water and vegetables for 10 days. He ate nothing for 40 and dependent on God alone. And like Daniel, Jesus submitted to the earthly rulers over him. As Daniel humbly asked them for permission to do these things, 
even as the sovereign of heaven, with all reality under his control, with at any moment if Jesus snapped his fingers or if he said a word, the armies of angels would come and deliver him and save him and defeat all of his enemies. Even as that, he let Pilate order his execution on a cross. Even as that, he let himself be beat and crucified by criminals. But his death wasn't a defeat, it was a victory. After his sacrificial death, he returned to life. And he died on that cross for you and for me and for sinners everywhere. It's the perfect sacrifice and brought us salvation. And Jesus came to bring us all and return us all out of exile. To bring sinners from the kingdoms of the world and give us permission to be citizens of heaven. And not just citizens of heaven, but to be his sons and daughters. To be adopted into his family. So that one day we can be delivered from the power of death and sin and given new life and a new home. And one day when Jesus returns, should we pray, come Lord Jesus. And even if he delays, either when he returns or when you go to your death, we will find our true home, the place with our Savior. The place that our souls have longed for our whole lives. And all this is not because we deserve it or we are awesome, but it's because of Jesus. It's because of what he accomplished on the cross for you and for me. So come and find salvation from Jesus, if you haven't already. In summary of where we've been this morning, we've looked at how God is always sovereign. He's always in control even when it looks like he's not, even when we doubt. See, we need to depend on the king of heaven and not the kings of earth. We're reminded that Jesus is a better Daniel who came to save sinners like you and me. Not because he had to. It's because he chose to because he loves you. And he wants you to be in his family. So while we find ourselves in exile on this side of eternity... Trust in the sovereign king, Jesus. I'm going to close this in prayer and then we're going to transition to a time of communion. Lord, I ask that you would be here this morning. Lord, I ask that you would let your word seek down deep into our hearts. Lord, would we trust in you and you alone? Would you be our only sovereign, our only king? Would we submit to you before we submit to anyone else? Lord, would we depend on you before we depend on anyone else and will we look to Jesus before we look to anyone else? We pray this in your holy and precious name. Amen. Why don't we stand as we worship our God in song one more time. Bless his name. His name is really blessed above every name on heaven and on earth. Hear this benediction from the end of Ephesians. Peace be to you, the brothers and sisters, and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love uncorruptible. God bless you. Go in peace.